Bookstuck with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Rita Katz, author of the new book, Saints and Soldiers, Inside Internet Age Terrorism from Syria to the Capital Siege. Uh, Rita, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you very much for having me. And congratulations uh, on the book. So who are the saints and soldiers of the title? I'll start with the soldiers, actually. The soldiers are the ISIS lone, what we used to be called lone wolf attackers that the world have experienced very much in the last few years, in the last, uh, I would say, decade. And saints are the far-right attackers that are called saints after they carried out attacks. So just to clarify, uh, when ISIS attacker in the West carries out an attack, uh, and he's not directly connected to ISIS, ISIS then will label him as a soldier of the caliphate. These kinds of names that they provide to attackers inspire immediately many others to follow with similar attacks. And the far right have been doing the same where we saw that after attacks such as Bauer's attack in Pittsburgh four years ago, uh, the far right community labeled him immediately a saint. And so each side has its own canon, saints for the far right and soldiers for ISIS. And, and these are two case studies in a, a much bigger argument of the book, looking at uh, how important the Internet is for uh, terrorism and, and, and uh, extremist organizations. And in fact, you, you make the point early on that previously we might have said that terrorists used the Internet, but today... The internet has actually become a necessity for terrorists, and in, and in many ways, um, they have been perhaps even created by it. Correct. It's. Uh, I have been watching terrorism, terrorist movements for 20, uh, 25 years, maybe even more, since I moved to the United States, and I have seen how much they changed. So, from my personal story of being, had to be present somewhere when I investigated terrorism, going undercover to and record radical sermons and, and exposing terrorist fronts in the United States. Today, all of my work is being done on the internet. And so you, I could see the shift, but even after 9-11, when terrorist organizations, especially Al-Qaeda, moved to the internet after the destruction of the training camps in Afghanistan, it hasn't been as much as I have noticed a whole new breed of terrorism that cannot explain solely by political or social and economic changes or shifts. It's a kind of terrorism that today these groups I describe and I, I analyze in the book use the internet as the only almost entirely sole location for their existence. These movements lack any location, lack leadership, grow, and are born on the internet. At the same time, these movements became, are more dangerous than movements that we have seen before, terrorist movements that we have seen before. They are quickly 
expand and accept variety of people from all kinds of communities. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. At one point, you say, take away the internet and there's barely anything left. Correct, because many of these movements today that we're experiencing today are movements that exist almost solely on the internet. For instance, I give the example of the QAnon movement. Uh, QAnon movement is spread all over the world today. It, is, it was born on the internet, and it's, that's why it's so global. But at the same time, when you look at terrorist movements in the past, terrorist movement had goals, had locations, had a leader, had uh, training camps, had, had membership. Today, a group like QAnon was created by Q or inspired by Q. Nobody knows who Q is. It, it consists of um, conspiracy theories that have you know, existed for many, many years, capitalizing on these conspiracy theories and recruited millions of people to become part of the QAnon movement that people actually acted on these conspiracy theories, whether the Pizzagate theory that a lot are very familiar with and other pedophilia theories thinking that, yeah, Democrats, uh, Hillary Clinton and others are actually going to drink the blood of kids. And so when you look at an organization like the QAnon, and it's not the only one, they'll really provide a movement of extremism throughout the world, where I find myself suddenly totally shifting gears from investigating pure terrorism that I used to do before, whether it is Hamas fund groups in the United States or Al-Qaeda, where they spread terrorist cells that are going to be activated. Instead, I find myself today monitoring for intelligence and early warnings on hospitals that might be attacked because QAnon movement had another conspiracy theory about hospitals or doctors or chips that are being injected with on our, in our body because of the COVID vaccine, not believing in COVID, yes, believing in COVID, and tracking trucks, caravan trucks that are going to black roads. So what you're seeing today is that the spread of terrorism is everywhere. And these new movements combine people from all ages, where you could see when the QAnon movement started really being created, is suddenly we saw soccer moms. We saw the baby boomers along with millennial generation and others suddenly all together in a movement that is called the QAnon movement. And people are pledging to the QAnon where we go one, we go all without even knowing who's the leader. Where is it based? What's the location? What does it stand for? And I think that the ideology here, the lack of ideology that we see today in movement is a crucial point in really analyzing and understanding today's terrorism. And, and, and it's fascinating that you pick up on that particular element too, because it, it does strike me that one of the differences between your previous experience and what you're grappling with now is that in the past, there was some sense of a, of a battle that was being conducted by different sides who genuinely believed in truth. They, 
They uh, very often they thought that there was a, a righteous element to what they were doing. That that very often is not the case with what is going on uh, today. It it it's almost as if there is little interest in truth itself. Yep. Absolutely. And that's what we have been seeing in recent years. And as you said, in the past, when I monitored terrorist organizations, you could see goals. You could see ideology. You could see, when it comes to jihadi organization, religious justification. You could see why they're fighting for and what are the targets. Today, when you look, for instance, as mass shooters, and I describe uh, the, how the far right in the last few years had really created a whole new movement of mass shooters that thanks to the, thanks to the internet, that because of movements, um, that exist on the internet and what the internet enables these movements were able to grow very quickly and inspire each other. These movements don't have specific ideology. You look at ISIS recruiters, what are they actually recruiting for? They were recruiting for one of the things I talk about, I have a whole chapter about it, um, is about women. If you join our movement, you, our organization, if you join ISIS, you can have as many women as you want. Or if you join ISIS, you will have women slaves. You can marry four women. That was one of the slogans that you could see on social media platforms in English and in other languages, really touching on what are the, what can they capitalize on subject that bother or frustrate a community. And they can use that to, for prospective uh, recruiters to basically tell them, we will solve all your problems. Like, for instance, when there were riots anywhere, whether it's between um, black protesters and police, they would show how black people are welcomed in ISIS. There is no difference between who you are. And the far-right community did exactly, has been doing actually, very much the same. Anyone, everyone, is welcome to our community from uh, whether it is people from the QAnon movement, they combine people, the anti-vaccine or those that didn't believe in COVID and even incel communities. Everyone is, our, is, in, is, is welcome to our community by also shifting the language to what it will fit to uh, train to recruit these uh, misfit or people that believe in conspiracy theories. This is what I call the black or far right 2.0. And and I mean, you you mentioned 2.0 there. I mean, how do we actually define terrorism today? How how is it that it's different from 20th century manifestations? Is it simply about the internet or is something else changing? So there are several factors that really change the definition of terrorism today. One is that you don't really see actual agenda. It is more a momentum trend shifting, uh, shifting the messages to what happened on current events. What is the latest trend they can use, communicate on, or 
you recruit individuals. Terrorism in the past was had a goal. Hamas, even organizations like Hamas, the IRA, were fighting for a goal. They want to break out from Israel and they want their own state. IRA wanted to break out from the United Kingdom. But today, when you look at mass shooters, the movement that I call screw your optic, the current, the new, the new trend within the acceleration movement, it is, has, it, it lacks any ideology. And if you allow me, I would just like to elaborate more on that. Uh, this month is four years to the attack in Pittsburgh that was carried out by Robert Bowers at the Tree of, uh, Tree of Life Synagogue. When Robert Bauer went to carry out his attack, it, he, it didn't come in, in one day. It happened over time. His, um, his account on Gab contained a lot of anti-Semitic statements and calls to kill Jews. When he went ahead to carry out his attack on that day, Saturday, he said, screw your optics. I'm going in. That sentence started a whole new generation, a whole new movement, new current that I called in my book that basically came to go against the old uh, political or school of thought that the far right community need to look really good, that they should really proceed with political changes rather than carrying out attacks. The Bauer statement, screw your optics, I'm going in, immediately became a slogan for people, for far-right individuals and others that believe that violence is really the only solution for them. And what you could see that while he was very much afraid of refugees, Muslim refugees that will will um, flood the country um, after a lot of rhetoric from um, President Trump at that time, warning about it. But he was really anti-Semitic, 100%. What happened later is that his attack was spread all over the far-right communities. And, and, and remember, I'm not saying social media, mainstream social media communities, I'm staying on the far right communities. And a few months later, in March 2019, Taryn carried out an attack in New Zealand, killing about 50 Muslims, one of the most awful, awful attacks I've ever seen in my life. That attack was inspired, was connected directly to Bauer's attacks because Terence's file of manifesto was called screw your optics. When you look at things like that, you immediately see the huge difference between terrorist movements today. Terrorist movements today don't have to be a membership of organization. They are inspired by connecting to the same platforms online. Tarrant was directly inspired by or connected to Bowers. But what happened later on, three weeks or four weeks later, April 
2019, another attack immediately happened, and that was in San Diego by John uh, Ernest. John Ernest immediately relied 100% on Tarrant and Bowers and called them as spiritual leaders for him by carrying out this attack. Now, how are these attacks have been seen by authorities? And that's really one of the points that I try to describe in my book, is that these attacks cannot be studied or investigated by all tools that government agencies are used to when they investigated terrorism in the past. So, for instance, I describe how investigators concluded that Ernest carried out the attack alone, that he didn't have any partners. Because that's really one of the things that when you investigate terrorism, you want to see who else is involved in that attack. And they said he was alone. But he really wasn't. And, and the understanding that how much the role that internet plays today in these specific chat rooms that, um, that, occup- that provided to the far-right communities is tremendous. It turns basically misfit or individuals that join these networks into mass shooters very quickly. Ernest says himself that I could have a great future ahead of me until I saw what Taryn did, until I read his ideology, his manifesto, and I immediately realized that I have to go and do something as soon as possible before it gets too late. So you, what you will see, and I detail a lot of other attackers that happened, and two, actually, the Buffalo attacker, he followed exactly the same trend. So what you see here is uniform attacks uniform talking points, despite never meeting each other. You, they don't need to meet, meet each other because what is written and what is shown on these platforms is so effective, is so troubling that you feel immediately you have to act on that. And you mentioned the the reaction uh, or the the strategies that are being developed by the authorities uh, in the book. You outline how there's a, a first national strategy for countering national terrorism. The FBI now has special units for national terrorism uh, as well. I mean, uh, do you how far behind the curve are we? Do you think in dealing with this new kind of terrorism? And what would your own strategy be for grappling with these kind of issues? That's a great question. I would start with probably, if you don't mind, giving you just a little bit of history about where I was after 9-11 and what happened then that should have happened and didn't happen from government agencies. When 9-11 happened, as I said before, they moved the Al-Qaeda and the recruitment moved all to the internet. That's where we were following them. We, I started, this is when I created site because I saw the, the new kind of, sh- of threat online where suddenly so many people from all over the world logging in to the first, you know, the first uh, message board that Al-Qaeda had. And, and we should just say that's your private intelligence firm that you run in Washington, D.C. Correct. Exactly. And I created it back in 2000, late 2002, when I saw the shift for a whole new way of recruitment and um, carrying out attacks uh, on various locations that are not 
actually conducted or instructed by Al-Qaeda, as we have seen 9-11 and previous attacks before that. And what you could see is suddenly people from all over the world joining these platforms and, and joining Al-Qaeda by biting it wherever they are. And at that time, the United States, the most powerful power, military power in the world, had an amazing victories in Afghanistan. They really destroyed Al-Qaeda's training camp. They destroyed Al-Qaeda's infrastructure there. They arrested the top leadership of Al-Qaeda. But the problem that we were facing, as I testified in 2007 before Congress, was that Al-Qaeda cells were now spread all over the world. There were attacks throughout the world, from London to the U.S. and, and elsewhere. And so... The question that I try to, what I try to tell Congress is the reason for that, that you're not seeing what's happening on the internet. And that was all even before the social media, before social media became, uh, became part of our life, along with smartphones, just by logging into specific message boards. And they became part of a community. You became part of Kawi's organization, the leader of the first leader of, um, of ISIS who used to be part of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and how that movement, it created a whole new generation that, of jihadists that were not really part of Al-Qaeda. And my message was that you have to set up a comprehensive analysis and study that understand how the internet is working for these communities. And I was talking about that topic Anywhere I could, I wrote about it, testified about it. I've never seen a real comprehensive study that really tried to understand what was going on. Rather, what you would see is that uh, the Pentagon will ask for a specific website to be shut down or an ISP and the server provider for that website will take that down after a beheading, as I described, what happened after Nicholas Berg beheading. But you didn't have any system for how you're going to fight these. And what happened over time with the creation of social media and smartphone, the problem just got much worse, which really developed to the creation of ISIS. And ISIS recruitment really left ideology behind, rather used what I said earlier, using culture differences, frustrations of communities to recruit individuals to join their, their, um, their, their group, their lines. And it doesn't have to be necessarily joining them physically. They can join them everywhere. We saw attacks by ISIS supporters all over the world. But even then, there was not a real comprehensive understanding of how this is working. And then you saw the far-right communities using the same techniques and again, not doing much to counter it. I was very struck, though, that one of the points that, that you make in the book is that uh, very often uh, the events that we see, and, and in fact you include January the 6th in this, are not actually about intelligence failure, uh, that it's more about a failure to act than it is about not, not really knowing that something uh, is coming down the track. I, I think that will come as a, as a surprise to many people why, why do you think, if we take that specific, specific example, why do you think there was a failure to act? So, as you said, January 6th, we have been 
monitoring January 6 as part of our monitoring of uh, the far-right growth in recent years. And many of the intelligence agencies that were responsible for January 6 have been receiving our intelligence warning uh, for January 6. It was from literally reporting about the bringing the zip ties to coordination, how people were driving all together to kidnap officials, to the mobilization that existed on their dedicated platforms. All of that was given to our intelligence. I would say those that receive our uh, daily intelligence warning, but not much was done. And the difference between, I would say, January 6th and, for instance, Al-Qaeda attacks was in my first book, Terrorist Hunter, which was pretty much an indictment for the FBI for not understanding and not sharing intelligence uh, intelligence at that time. January 6th had the sharing of the intelligence everywhere. We have seen FOIA reports, which I myself was very surprised about, FOIA reports uh, that were released after January 6th, which is Freedom of Information Act, revealed that our emails, our alerts to the government were shared among multiple agencies from the Secret Service to the Capitol Police to Congress and effusion centers that were in charge uh, in D.C. And they were not acted on. Why they were not acted on? I believe that one of the things that the January 6th committee had showed is that there were there was some kind of system behind blocking act to act on these intelligence information. We saw the trial of the Oath Keepers. We saw testimonies by Trump aides who said that Trump was behind much of that before even everything. Our reports constantly said that what Trump said had immediate consequences to what people didn't act on the ground. And I wonder, I mean, it's it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, when we think, if we put this into a historical context, that if, if for example, you take something like uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor in, in December 1941, when we look back, we can see quite clearly that that was going to happen when we look at the documents and the warnings and, uh, and so on. But of course, in real time, uh, amidst all of the, the complexity and contradictions of all the information that was coming, uh, that was coming in, that was not clear uh, at the time. So I, you know, I wonder that you know, how, how much is it that we can see these things uh, after the event, but it, of course, it's so much more difficult, uh, particularly in the internet age, to work out what is actually going on before the event, what's happening in real time. So one of the advantages of having these communities on, to, on the internet is they need to talk and they need to recruit and they need to have people following these orders. To do that, you have to be online and say what you want people to do. And what we did inside Intelligence School from the beginning, we really realized that being on the internet is the biggest weakness that these groups can have. I provide examples about how, for instance, the site Intelligence Group 
was able to um, intercept ISIS communications, ISIS video before the beheading of Stephen Sattler, and how that, what we did then, really affected the group during that time in recruitment following that attack. Because they, the beheadings of, of Americans and Brits and others was really an act of terrorizing communities, but at the same time, it played a major role in recruitment that really, when you see it at that time on Twitter, that Twitter was the main platform that ISIS was using. It was, it was for us, it was a home run that we were able to intercept that video. And why were we able to intercept that video? Because when you operate online, there are a lot of um, points or locations that you can, if you understand how it works, you can capitalize on that and you can hijack or disrupt their operation. And that's something that if, that's why it was so important to tell government agencies, please take the time, take the time to understand how exactly these organizations work or movements, including the far right, because if you understand what and how you can dis dis disrupt the movement, but in more than that, you can gather a lot of intelligence information. Look, SITE exists for about 20 years, and SITE today is the leading organization in counterterrorism information. And what, what it really provides is intelligence information, early warnings before things happen. Because when jihadi organizations, we, which we started with at that time, jihadi organizations need to recruit. They have to have people join them. And how will they do that today? It's all being done on the internet. And the more, the more you publish, the more you, you send information, the more you are online, the more people you will be able to recruit. They need these people as the oxygen. When they were back then in training camps, in a location, they didn't really need it. Terrorist organizations used websites for coordination on when is the next fundraising event is going to happen. Or if you want to learn more about our last attack, here's what happened, or here's our ideology. But today, they need these people from all over the world to be part of the organization virtually. And this virtual network is not less dangerous than actually more dangerous than the old infrastructure. So by really monitoring and knowing what they're saying is something that is crucial for topping the next attack. So the book is Saints and Soldiers Inside Internet Age Terrorism from Syria to the Capital Siege. It's written by my guest, Rita Katz, and published by Columbia University Press. Uh, but for now, Rita, congratulations again on the book and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you very much. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. Thank you.